belong, become, believe. You're listening to Grace Church of Northwest Arkansas podcast. The message for the week of June 6, 2021 is called Too Good to be True. The speaker is John Ray and the location is Pratt Place Barn in Fayetteville, Arkansas. Sometimes I think that Christianity should come with one of those disclaimers, like they have in medical ads. Um, your, you know, for medication, it says your personal effects may vary. <laughs> right? This is what it promises, but on an individual basis, it may not quite work out that way. I, I feel like, like that, we ought to get that disclaimer in a way when we present the gospel. There is no one-size-fits-all response. And while the promises are true for everyone and at all time, our experience of those promises really vary. They vary widely from person to person, community to community, age to age. I've been spending a lot of time lately with really dear friends who are facing crushing disappointments devastating loss and debilitating disillusionment. I'm not talking about minor inconveniences or first world problems. Um, I'm talking about life and faith altering trauma. And in the midst of this, we come across this text we have this week, Isaiah 60, as you're going to see, which is full of these magnificent and really over the top promises. They're made to the people of God. And and as I read these, I've struggled this week with my response. I want to sarcastically sneer back at God and say, yeah, right. I want to bring the pain and the hopelessness of my friends as accusations before God. And demand that God shine his light on this. And even more deeply... I'm honest, I want to somehow hurt God back. I want God to feel the pain that I feel. I want God to feel the pain that my friends feel. Just being honest. That's how I feel. I want him to know how it feels the losses that can never be made up for, the questions that have gone unanswered, the ones that feel ignored. There's part of me that just wants to take, tell God to take his promises and shove them back up where the sun doesn't shine. Now, before you think of me as having lost faith here, you're like, wait, are we in church? (laughs) Let me offer a different take. I think God might be purposely intending such a response, inviting it, even. inviting me to dump all my pain, my hurt, my doubt, my questions fully into the lap of God. I think the purposes of this promise, uh, I think the purpose of the promises in this chapter might not be so much, hey, don't worry, be happy. Or here, let me promise you a little ice cream so you'll stop crying and forget about your boo-boo. Not not that. I think it's to fully consider 
the weight of our own pain, our own longings that have been unanswered, our own suffering and loss, and fully evaluate where we are going for healing. Like, what do we really expect in the midst of this? And to analyze and to consider, what are we going to do with our trauma? What is the story we're going to tell ourselves? How are we going to frame this out? Look, there are no easy answers this morning. I'm not going to wrap this up with a nice bow and make it neat. But there is something that is beneath that. The unshakable unveiling of the reality that there is nothing that we have experienced experienced or ever will experience that can cut us off from the goodness and presence of God. So let's dig in and see if we can find. We're reading Isaiah 60. Now, Isaiah 56 through 59, which we talked about last week, focused on what the community needed to do in the situation if it expected to act, if it expected God to act. These next three chapters, 60, 61, 62, we're going to see what God promises to do in return. And those of you who have been following along, we're using a a great commentary by John Golden Gay, um, Isaiah for Everyone. If you want to grab that, it's a great companion, almost a devotional to read along with these. Well, let's look at the text, right? So Israel has been told all these things. We've talked about fasting. We've talked about laying down your rights. We've talked about doing righteousness. We've talked about practicing Sabbath. And then God responds. He says, arise, shine, for your light arrives. The splendor of the Lord shines on you. For look, darkness covers the earth and deep darkness covers the nation, but the Lord shines on you. His splendor appears over you. Now remember, this is written during the time of Nehemiah and Ezra. The the majority of the people are still in captivity in Babylon. And those that have returned to Jerusalem have found rubble. Chaos. Okay. So these are the words in that context that these are being spoken. Look all around you. They all gather and come to you. Your sons come from far away and your daughters are escorted by guardians. Then you will look and smile. You will be excited and your heart will swell with pride for the riches of distant land will belong to you. And the wealth of nations will come to you. Camel caravans will cover your roads. Young camels from Midian and Ephah. All the merchants of Sheba will come, bringing gold and incense and singing praises to the Lord. All the ships of Kedar will be gathered to you. The rams of Nehoboth will be available to you as sacrifice. They will go upon my altar acceptably, and I will bestow and, and I will bestow honor on my majestic temple, the one that is in rubble, as this is written. Who are those who float along like a cloud and fly like those to their shelters? Indeed, the coastlands look eagerly for me. Their large ships are in the land, bringing your sons from far away, along with their gold and silver, to honor the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, for he has bestowed honor upon you. Foreigners will rebuild your walls. The kings will serve you. Even though I struck you down in my anger, I will restore my favor and have compassion on you. Your gates will remain open at all times. They will not be shut during the day or at night, so that the wealth of the nations may be delivered. With the kings leading the way. Indeed, nations or kingdoms that do not serve you will perish. Such nations will be def- will definitely be destroyed. The splendor of Lebanon will come to you. Its evergreens, firs, cypresses together to beautify my palace. 
I will bestow honor upon my throne room. The children of your oppressors will come bowing to you. All who treated you with disrespect will bow down at your feet. They will call you the city of the Lord, Zion of the Holy One of Israel. You were once abandoned and despised with no one passing through, but I will make you a permanent source of pride and joy to coming generations. You will drink the milk of nations. You will nurse the breast of kings, which is a disturbing image. Um, then you will recognize that I, the Lord, am your deliverer, your protector, the powerful one of Jacob. Instead of bronze, I will bring you gold. Instead of iron, I will bring you silver. Instead of wood, I will bring you bronze. Instead of stones, I will bring you iron. I will make prosperity your overseer and vindication your sovereign ruler. Sounds of violence will no longer be heard in your land. Or the sounds of destruction and devastation within your borders. You will name your walls deliverance and your gates praise. The sun will no longer supply night to you, light to you by the day, nor will the moon's brightness shine on you. The Lord will be your permanent source of light. The splendor of God will shine upon you. Your sun will no longer set. Your moon will not disappear. The Lord will be your permanent source of light. Your time of sorrow will be over. All your people will be godly. They will possess the land permanently. I will plant them like a shoot. They will be the product of my labor through whom I reveal my splendor. The least of you will multiply into a thousand. The smallest of you will become a large nation. When the right time comes, I, the Lord, will do this quickly. Wow. 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 I mean, that's pretty over-the-top stuff. Now, we have to remember that this is a song. It's, an, it's like an epic poem. The vocabulary was meant to evoke emotion more than give a specific contractual obligation on a promise. But even then, this is, this is one of those sappy love songs that says, I will love you forever, and no matter what happens, right? And you're kind of going, yeah, right. <laughs> What are we to do with this? Well, I think we're going to see some things. I think we're going to see that our ultimate hope must be placed in the presence and promises of God, regardless of our current experience, circumstance, or understanding. We have to understand that this was written, this was promised to the people who were not experiencing this. There were no ships coming in. Now, they did rebuild the temple. But it is said in Jewish tradition that the people wept when it was finished because it was nothing to compare to Solomon's temple, which had been destroyed. And yes, they did regather their sons and daughters, but not all. The diaspora of the Jewish people from this time has, has continued into our own day. And as far as Nations streaming to get their wisdom. I don't know that they necessarily fall in the top 10 right now of places that that's happening. So what does this mean with these? Is, is, it just, is it just pie in the sky? Or is it real? Is there something here for us? Well, here's what I think. In disciplining ourselves, we need to understand that disciplining ourselves to wait and live into the promises of God takes a lifetime. 
Even though the end of this says, I will do it quickly. Quickly in God's time is not quickly according to us. That following Jesus and living into these promises takes a lifetime and sometimes even takes generations of lifetimes. That what we may not fully experience or see, our children might, or their children might, or their children But we play a role in that as it develops. It is this practice of waiting, of expecting, of believing, often, probably most often, in spite of, that defines us as Christians. Look, our, our evangelical church has fallen prey, just like everything else, to the need for a sitcom wrap-up in 30 minutes. A quick and nice ending to something. Put a bow on it. Make it happen really quick. We don't see that in Scripture. We see instead generations waiting on the promises of God to be revealed. Another way that we understand scripture here at Grace Church is we understand, well, what did it mean to the original hearers? What does it mean? What did it mean to the first believers? And what does it mean to us? Well, I think to the original hearers, this was written, first of all, we need to understand this was written to a people, not a person. In, in our Western society, again, we tend to take this as, hey, this is the Bible is God's love letter to me. Like everything is personal, applicable. And while I do believe that there is there is a way to encounter scripture personally. This wasn't written to John Ray in Fayetteville, Arkansas, 21st century. Isaiah 60 was not, written, was not written with me in mind as the original audience. As we've said earlier, this was the people of Israel who were hearing it. And it was written in a way that it will apply, that, that it implies it will happen over time, not immediately. And that it was meant to be experienced by the people, if not by every individual person. And that's something that's really hard for us to kind of grasp as a modern people is that when a promise is meant for a people, that the group may experience it together, but any individual in the group might not in a way that they understand with that. We have to understand, again, that this was a people, as we talked about a little analogy that came up, it's like a people who grew up in poverty and could never imagine what it would be like to live in a nice house. What it would never could never really even imagine what it'd be like to have running water in a car that didn't break down and, and get your paycheck and not have to take a payday loan to get you through the week. Like they just couldn't even imagine it. This was this was meant to spark hope and imagination in the people. That's why that's one of the reasons why the language is so over the top. To the original hearers, this was like. Hey, there is a future coming. There is a presence that is available that is beyond your wildest dreams. That's the imagery here. It is beyond your wildest dreams imagination. And it was meant, it was meant to call the people out of this lifetime that they had had of subservience, of being enslaved, of being looked down upon, saying that's not who you are. That's not the truth about you. There is something better out there. Well, that was to the original hearers. I think that's one way we can understand it. I think to the first Christians, there's this even more exciting thing is that they started to understand that these promises were fulfilled in Jesus or at least initiated in Jesus. 
but that the kingdoms that were talked about here as, as physical things then were a, a kingdom of a whole different kind. The kingdom of God was going to be this radically different thing with Jesus as its radically different king with that. That the riches were not made of material or status or achievement, but of love, joy, peace, kindness, relationships not based in buying and selling, and power over, but respect and mutuality, honor and serving, giving and receiving. That the cedars of Kedar and the gold that was being offered, that was to stand in, that was metaphorically that we understand now that there is a way to live together as human beings that breaks chains, that sets people free, that there is a riches that transcends material. As Paul says, where there's a riches in the kingdom where, where rust doesn't destroy it, moths don't eat it, thieves can't steal it. And the first Christians, I think, started to understand themselves in the kingdom in light of these promises. And they started to see, oh my gosh, this is, this is true, but it's true in a different way. It's true in some very different way. And they started to bet their lives on it. As we saw it when we talked about Pentecost just a few weeks ago, they started to just, they started to sell everything. They started to give stuff away. They started to, to, to be reconciled to people they were formerly would never have eaten with. They started taking them into their homes and eating with them. They started to be reconciled to people who were formerly enemies. They started to see that the kingdom of God transcended ethnic divisions, class stratifications, even the gender hierarchy that was there was destroyed. Men and women were equal together with that. This, this riches of this kingdom was something radically different. Well, what does this mean for us today? Well, I think our role as we read this is to discern, and this is a role I believe in the church, we're going to be talking more about this through the summer, but this is the role of the church is to discern God's presence and reflect it, to discern God's truth and reflect it, to live it out, to embody it. We have this heritage of what was given to the early church, and it's our job to carry that forward in our lives, in the way that we live, then this is a message to a group. We have to go back even to the original and go, hey, look, this is for all of us. But to each of us, it is going to be unique how we do this, how we experience it. And at times, it's going to be like, man, I, <laughs> God's light is shining on me. Like things are clicking, baby. Like, our lives are going to be like the Razorback baseball team right now. <laughs> we're going to be hitting it out of the park. We're going to be winning every game. And it is a clear road to Omaha. Nobody <laughs> just didn't curse our baseball team. <laughs> <laughs> but honestly, those, those times are going to be few and far between. A lot of the times it's going to be like, uh, did everybody leave without me? <laughs> well, am I the only one experiencing this? With that, um, as I was preparing for this, I just I do this periodically. I Google searched um, what to do when God seems absent or God's promises seem 
not to be fulfilled, right? And man, did I get some search engine results. <laughs> and it was all five things to remember when you're undergoing trial, four things to do when you're encountering suffering, six things to think about. Here's a new book to read. Here's a new conference to go to. Just a bunch of pull yourselves up by your spiritual bootstraps BS. And my feed was full of performative religion. It was heartbreaking. No wonder we're all so damn tired. But I wonder, in a way, if that's not the subversive mission of this message to get us to admit our exhaustion and to face the poverty of all our striving outside of God. To get us to look with clear-eyed sobriety at the poverty of every other means of life. These promises may seem over the top until you compare them with the life outside of God. Outside of the the promise of God's presence, outside of the promise of what God offers to us. When we start to look at it in that context, then I believe our eyes start to get open and we go, what what other hope do we have? Who else offers us the words of life? Think about Peter's admission when Jesus turns to him and says, are you going to leave me too? And he goes, who else has the words of life? When we start to see... We may, we may look inwardly and go, well, what about, what about, what about? But then when we step back and we look out, we go, but what else? <clears throat> but what else? There is nothing else. I, I love, again, what Rachel Held Evans said. She said, Christianity is the one thing she's willing to be wrong about. She's willing to live a better life on it, even if it's wrong. Listen, Jesus is the one thing. I'm willing to be wrong about. I'm willing to go all in on. Because I looked around at the options and believe that I've tried a lot. Tried a lot. They're all death camps. Traps. Dead ends. Tricks. Bait and switch. These promises may seem over the top. I mean, what else do we have? There's nothing that compares to them. There's nothing that compares to them. I wonder if that's not the meaning of this in a deeper level is to get us to look at this and see that these are the only real things, the only things that last, the only things that deliver, the only thing that saves, the only things that give us life. Is it too good to be true? Or are they the only things that are actually true? The Christian faith is an invitation to see everything good, bad, painful, and joyful is inviting us into more to, to more deeply experience the presence of God in us and around us. We talked much in preparing this week about how plants are always growing two ways. Into the soil and out of the soil. Digging deep into the darkness, the doubt, the pain suffering, mystery. 
We don't run from that. We're not exempt from that as Christians. As a matter of fact, we're called deeper into it. But just like we're called deeper into it in the same sense that a plant's roots are called deeper into the soil where the nourishment is. But that can only be done in conjunction. That plant can only grow if it's also growing upward towards the light. If it is turning towards the light, if it is turning towards the source with that. If it is living, if it is dwelling in that light, if it is bringing that light in, it allows that plant to grow. That, that's what this offers to us. is not to escape the darkness, not to be free from it, but to see our roots grow deep into it so that we flourish. All this is made possible in the person of Jesus, the life, death, resurrection of the true life, the Messiah, the one who knows our pains and doubts and suffering and welcomes them and takes them into himself and gives us back life, life abundantly. As Amy said in our teaching team, this is not golden ticket Christianity. This is an invitation to experience joy and hope here and now. That's what I think Paul wrote when he wrote to the Ephesians and he took he took this first verse of Isaiah 60 and combined it with some others, and he wrote in Ephesians 5.20, Awake, O sleeper, rise from the dead, and Christ will shine upon you. At Grace Church, all our practices start with belonging, the practice of radical hospitality. This is an invitation to each of us and all of us to center our identity and our relationships in our belovedness by God, and not in our own righteousness or ego. As we learn to accept this about ourselves, we learn to accept it in others. Mm-hmm. And this is how we become more and more to reflect the image of God. All of this forms our faith and is formed by our confession and practices. That faith is a gift. I, I, in addition to teaching here, some of you may know this, but I'm, I'm a certified spiritual director. So what a spiritual director does, I just sit with people. I help them discern where God is leading them. I don't offer them, it's not a pastoring gig, it's not a counseling gig. It's just a way to hold space for people to be aware of what the work is God is doing with them. But that comes at a, at a certain cost. <clears throat> Because as I listen to other people's pain, I'm reminded of my own. So I listen to other people's loss, it touches to my own loss. And one of, one of the ways I can do that is because I know it. But another way is it, there's a cost with that. I'm reminded of my own pain with that. And I do know this, that I'm not going to work myself out. There's not four easy steps. There's not five principles to do this. A lot of it involves waiting. And I love this image. I get to I get the incredible blessing of camping at the Colorado National Monument. If you've ever been there, you know they have these huge canyon walls. And we'll get up in the morning before daybreak and we'll go sit on the rim of the canyon. And you look down and you just see darkness. And then as the sun shines, as it rises, it literally paints the sides of the canyon. As the light hits it, it's, it's like it's being painted. It goes from darkness to light. Y'all, that's what we're invited. That's what we're invited into in this passage. 
is to wait, to believe that the light is coming out, to sit in the darkness, to know that the darkness has a purpose, to know that we're not going to work our way out of it, we're not going to buy our way out of it, we're not going to beg our way out of it. But it's coming. It's a gift. If we can sit, we can focus, we will see God paint that for us. Thank you for listening to Grace Church of Northwest Arkansas podcast. You can find more about us online at gracechurchnwa.org. Grace and peace.